0: So if you have your Bibles today, go ahead and however you access the Scriptures, we're going to be in uh, probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible, and that's John 3.16. And uh, we will get there eventually, but we're going to make our way back to the Old Testament first, and then we'll kind of move our way forward to get there. But this morning, we're going we're gonna to conclude the series that we started at the beginning of the month, which is our Christmas series, which is receiving and giving and talking about what are traditionally called Advent themes, which is this coming in anticipation of Jesus. And so we've hit on themes like hope and peace and joy and that the reality of what it means when Jesus comes into the world and then obviously he comes into our lives, how he brings those things with him and asks us not only to receive, but to give those things away. Jesus never does any work in our life that is exclusively just for us. He always does it th- in us and then through us to other people. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to f- finish this series with the concept of love. And love is a obviously extremely important concept for us to grasp, but it's something that gets thrown around a lot. We use the word love more than we even realize. And we use it in context which kind of, kind of downplay the meaning or the significance like for example if you're really hungry and you go to your favorite restaurant and you're sitting down at your favorite meal you would probably say something like i love this meal right or if you bought a car that you've been longing to have and you're driving the car and you really enjoy the car you say i love this car or i love my job maybe right or i love whatever we say we love lots of things i i love the rams or the lakers or the dodgers or some of you the angels we will pray for you but you love something right but when we do that, what we're doing is we're, we're trying to create this feeling or this emotion towards something that doesn't necessarily reciprocate love back to us. And that's why, which we'll talk about this morning, God has created us in such a way that there is a specific context for love. And in fact, apart from it, you cannot experience love. And the context is relationship. See what, what love is fully uh, experienced is through human relationships and our relationship with God. and if you take love outside of that, you can't experience it because God's created it to come through this avenue of love. And so our avenue of relationships. So understanding that the Bible defines love for us this way, that it says God is love. Therefore, the definition of love is God's definition and His understanding. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the concept of love that is not a human creation. It's not something that we manufacture. In fact, the Bible uses in the New Testament, uses a a Greek term that's the word agape that many of us have heard before. And that's the Greek word for love, and it's the God kind of love, which means it's a— and this is what I want us to understand when we talk about love. This is when we refer to love today. This is what we're talking about. There's a lot of different facets to agape love, but the two that I really want to dial in on this morning is this— is that agape love, the God kind of love that is given to us through Jesus coming to the earth and dying for us and rising from the dead, and the one that he wants us to give away is really defined by two primary things that I want us to focus on this morning. The first one is that it's a love that has no limits. And that's hard for us because we always think of things with limitations. And, and that means it's a love that doesn't have a cap on it. It doesn't have a certain extent, and then it's, it runs out. It's always present, all the time, forever. That's God's love. That's the kind of love he, he brings into our lives. The second thing, and this is probably a harder one, because this is where we live, is that kind of love is a love without conditions. And we live in a conditional world, don't we? Everything is conditioned upon something. So you have to do this in order to gain this. And so because of that, that, that kind of love completely kind of blows apart our human kind of love, and it's the kind of love that God gives, and also as we receive it, we're supposed to give it away. So it's, I want us to understand that today, because if you put that concept of love in the context of how God created it to be experienced is through relationship, then you and I realize that our definition of love always comes through a person. That's how we understand love. And so that is either a great strength or a great weakness, depending on your context. For those of you who think about love, you think about, okay, I think about a particular person. I think of a, a spouse or somebody I'm engaged to or a, a friendship that I have. And I think about love, I think I love that person Why? and they love me. So that's the context that we have. So I want us to understand that because it's so important. In fact, I'm going to spend some time before we get into specifics of what this kind of love looks like in our life and how it gets conveyed to other people. I want us to understand how important relationship is because relationship is the foundation and the conduit that God uses for us to understand what love is. And so because of that, I want to just take a few minutes to go back to the Old Testament to talk a little bit about this concept and kind of the foundation for us in terms of understanding the foundation of this relational context that God gives for love. And and you'll see how important this is because, again, love is not a concept that kind of floats around out here. Love is tangible when it's done in relationship. That's how we experience it. So the first thing is this. These are the three things of kind of this foundation of relationship is that, first of all, we are created with relational DNA, it's just it's a part of the nature of being human is to be in relationship. Now, those of you are in the room who are, are introverts, you're thinking, well, not me. God must have missed that DNA part of my life. But actually, if you and I are honest, all of us have a deep sense of longing for relationship. To feel like we belong, to feel like we're connected, to not feel like we're isolated. In Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-six and twenty-seven, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and that let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God didn't just create male, didn't just create female. He created both. Why? Because they're supposed to be in relationship. And to be made in the image of God means that we reflect the nature of who God is, and God, def- God reveals himself and defines himself in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we call it the Trinity. It's not a concept that you and I can get our brain around because it's a God thing, but God is in him and himself is in relationship in his nature. Therefore, when he creates human beings, we have his stamp on us down to the, the core of who we are, that we are supposed to be in relationship. In fact, then you get to the New Testament. Listen to what Jesus says. when he, One of the last prayers he prays for his followers Listen to what he he values, what's important in this prayer. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me and that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What is Jesus praying for? Unity, relationship, connection. He's saying the way that the message gets conveyed to the world is that when those who follow me are actually one as we are one, as he and the Father are one, that deep connection. So relationships are embedded there. Second thing is that relationships, in terms of this foundation, that we are created to be in relationship. That's, that's the natural, actually believe it, the natural outflow of humanity is to be in relationship with other people. And there's a couple of things I want to highlight about that. F- their, their relationships are based on this thing called friendship, but friendship comes in different forms. Friendship comes, first of all, in marriage. And if you're single, friendship comes in the form of friendship. <laughs> and friendship is the key, and this is why it's so important. I'll read it in a moment. Is that friendship is the avenue of relationship where we understand giving and receiving love. And in a marriage relationship, friendship has to be the foundation before romance ever happens. Otherwise, there's a problem. Because romance doesn't sustain relationship. Friendship sustains relationship. And so that's why it's important for us to understand this concept of friendship. And this is how the Bible describes in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18, and verse 21 to 24. This is how God put everything in motion as far as the context of marriage. It says, the Lord said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper and suitable for him. So think about this. It's not just man being human, but humanity, it's not good for us to be alone. Why we weren't created that way. It's verse 21. It says, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the, fle- uh, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. It's that deep bond that God created us to be in. But you know what's really cool is that that same kind of bond that is experienced in marriage and friendship is also experienced between people who are not married in terms of the reality of friendship. I love this description. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. Probably one of the most powerful elements of friendship is David and Jonathan. They had an incredible bond. Listen how this, this, the Bible describes their friendship. It said, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. There's this deep, why? Because there's a longing in both Jonathan and David to be in relationship with somebody else, to be in friendship, to be connected. And so I say this again, I know you're probably thinking, man, Pastor John, just get on with it. No, you can't, you can't leap over relationship, or you will never get love. In fact, there's some of you here today, you've lived such isolated lives, either out of your own brokenness or the brokenness of other people towards you, you've never experienced what it is to be loved by somebody, because you've removed yourself in self-protection, because you don't want to be harmed or hurt, so you isolate, and so because of that, you don't know what love is. But the God of the universe didn't send a concept, he didn't send a thought, in fact, he didn't even send a book, although the Bible is God's word, he sent who? His Son, in human form to relate relationally, relationally to human beings. So then the final thing of this kind of foundation is that relationship ultimately was what was lost at the beginning, back at the, in the garden. So if you go back to Genesis again, we're looking at the first few chapters there, but in, in chapter 3, we, everything the wheels start to come off in the, in, the, in the story. Adam and Eve have been instructed, you can eat from anything except for the one tree, which is the knowledge of good and evil, and we get to chapter 3, and what do they do? They eat of the one thing that they can't eat of. Why? Because the statement that Adam and Eve made to God was, thanks for the advice, thanks for your insight, but we'll do it on our own. We'll make the decision what's right and wrong, what's good and bad for ourselves. But then when you get to verse eight, after they eat of the fruit, it says this in verse eight of John, or Genesis chapter three. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. What's going on here? So Adam and Eve had this incredible relationship with the God of the universe. He would walk in the garden. He would spend time in the garden. He would be present with them as we are present with each other. They would relate face to face as we do as human beings. And when they decided to basically not take God up on his offer to be one that would give guidance and wisdom and understanding, he would be the leader. And they chose to be the leader. Then what did they lose? They lost relationship. They lost connection. They lost the very thing that gives them meaning and purpose in this world. They lost that. Why? Because they chose to do it themselves. And what they also lost is not only lost that, they lost their innocence. That's why in Genesis 2.25 it says when Adam and Eve were in their their original state before the fall, before Genesis 3, that they were naked and they had no shame. There was innocence. They lose their innocence. Shame becomes a part of the equation, and now there's this disconnect. So why am I spending so much time on relationship? Because of this. You and I struggle with receiving love when we're disconnected from God, because God is the ultimate source of love. And the only way we find our way back into understanding love again is if we find our way back into relationship with God. But because we're human beings, guess what we've all lost? We've all lost connection with God in one form or another in our lifetime, because there are decisions we make all the time that chooses us over God and His wisdom but God makes a way through Jesus coming and being born at Christmas and then living a perfect life and then dying on the cross and rising from the dead that takes our sin and failure that disconnects us from God and then reconnects us because Jesus takes our sin on him. It's all done through what? Relationship, relationship, relationship. Why? Because the outcome of broken relationship is isolation and isolation kills the soul. That's why, in, in before we get to John three sixteen, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 15, one of the very famous passages, Jesus tells three distinct stories about three things that were lost. And there's a common thread that runs through all of them. They all find themselves being in isolation. He talks about sheep and how one wanders off and when that one wanders off, the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. Why? Because the one in ignorance has isolated themselves. By the way, no, there's no um, it's not an accident that the Bible refers to followers of Jesus as sheep because sometimes we are stupid, right? We're <laughs> ignorant and we do dumb things. And even in our stupidity, God still comes after us. And then the next story Jesus tells is, is the, the value of a coin, That somebody loses a coin and that coin is so valuable, but the true value of money is not when it's lost, it's when it's found. Why? Because when it's lost, it's not useful. So it tells the story of a woman who literally turns her house upside down to find this coin. Why? Because that coin has great value to you when it's reunited with her. And then he tells the famous story we call the prodigal son which is the story of the lost son, which is a son who makes his decision knowingly to reject his father, take a third of his wealth, and go live his own life. And then after losing everything, he finally comes to his senses. And when he comes back, he was isolated, disconnected. What does the father do? He throws his arms open wide, and he embraces his son back in. In fact, he throws a party. Why? Because what was lost was relationship. What is gained is relationship. And I say all that because this is what we're going to talk about in the next few things I want to focus on today, is that the understanding of love comes through relationship, and the only way we understand God's love, which has no limits, which has no conditions, is if we're in a relationship with him. And when that is reestablished, love comes to us, and then God says, now, now you give that love away. You receive it from me, and now you give it away. So how do we give away love that's that kind of love? What are we supposed to do? What does it require of us. So there's there's something important, a concept that I'm going to read here in John 3 16, that we have to understand. It's a, it's a word that we throw around, but it's a very important word. It's the word incarnation. And incarnation describes that the God of the universe became human, he took on human flesh. And incarnation means to be present. And so to in order for God to show us his love, as I said, he sent his son to become human, which is the incarnation. Which means for us to experience love means God has to become one of us so that we see what love looks like and we know what love is. Which means for us to give love away, what does that require of us? We have to live incarnationally. We have to live what? Present with people. And we'll talk about this in a moment because God has chosen to be present with us and to understand our humanity so that he can convey his love to us. And if we've received that, what does that mean for us? then we have to live with other people conveying God's love through us to them without limits and without conditions. Easy. We're done, right? Should we just go home and practice this, right? <laughs> but that kind of love requires something of us. It's something, and there's a number of things, but it's difficult, but it's, these are the things we want to talk about that it requires of us. But let me read John 3:16, which you can pro- many of you can quote because it's so famous. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have... Eternal life. Anybody heard that before? Yes, most of us have. What does that verse actually mean? Well, let's just take some time to break it down. It's talking about what love and how love is defined. The first thing is this. Incarnational love requires the removal of limits. It requires the removal of limitations that we place on things around us. So for God so loved, love meaning the word agape, which is what? No limits, no conditions. That's the God kind of love which means that God removed the limits of us being disconnected from him by coming to earth. The big gap between us is no longer there. But if you and I will think about this for a moment, this is hard for us because we live in a world and we live in a context where our love and our affection is always based on something else somebody has to do for it. We live that way. And we have to think about this. Is our love for somebody based on our love for somebody, or is it based on their worthiness of being loved? See, whether we know it or not, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have kind of a a mental kind of checklist of what somebody has to do in order for them to justify us loving them. And it's hard for us to not go through that list or not use that lens to look at people, but God doesn't use that lens. God loves what unconditionally, without limits So it means we have to be willing to remove the limits that we place on people or the criteria we use to say, you are lovable and, boy, you're not lovable. And we have those kinds of people. And particularly, it's easy to love the people that we already love. It's hard to love the people that we don't because that's where love really makes a difference because that's when it has to remove the limit of, I don't love you because you did this to me or because you live this way or you made this decision, or you did this, whatever it is, and we have that condition, we always kind of categorize it. I love you if. You know, I've never quite heard that in marital vows that I've done lots of weddings. I'll love you if you're never sick, if you're always handsome and beautiful, if no. If you're never poor, no, that never comes out, right? I love you unconditionally without limits. It's really hard when somebody wrongs you to truly love them. But that's the God kind of love. Did we all wrong God? Yeah, we all turned our back on him, and yet he keeps coming after us. He keeps pursuing us. He sends Jesus into the world. So what does that mean for us? When somebody wrongs us, one of the greatest statements of love is finding a way to forgive them, which is hard. It's really hard. You know, something I've seen in, in the, the media a lot lately, and it happens a lot more, but it's happened for a lot, lots of years. Churches become targets because they, the, there's a sense that churches are easy targets for thieves to come in and steal valuable equipment, things like that, and because... The church is so trusting, they'll just let anybody in, and so it happens all the time. See it in the news all the time. Somebody breaks in and steals stuff, so don't get any ideas. The angels guard Antioch, and we're safe here, okay? <clears throat> Besides, we have ADT, and we have police officers, and things like that, so... But there's this... It's a thing that happens all the time. It was just in the media this last week, and I, I went and just did some internet searches just to kind of see, and this is one of the things that popped up with all of that. It's really interesting, is along with churches being targets and being robbed is the stories of churches finding ways to forgive those who steal from them. I saw m- numerous interviews with pastors and leaders in churches, and obviously, you know, they file the pre-support. They go through all these things, and they say, but you know what? If we ever meet this person, and if they're listening, we want to, them to know, we forgive you. In fact, you can see there's a church that put it on their marquee. That's, that's the statement. Those who robbed us, we choose to forgive you. What is that saying? We're saying we're removing the limit or condition that we always put on people to say, I only love you if you never steal from me. But love says what? I choose to forgive you even though you don't deserve it, which is how we receive love. We don't deserve it, but God gives it to us. So that's the the first thing. That's an easy requirement, right? Just remove all limits. Moving on. Second thing. incarnational love also requires embracing all. So if you've been at Antioch for a an amount of time, you realize that as we go through messages, the points get harder as you go. So, sorry if this is even more difficult. This is a hard one. When the when John three sixteen says, "So for God so loved, remember no limits, no conditions, the world." That isn't just creation, or the planet. It's people. God so loved the world. It doesn't say God so loved Christians or Jews or good people or people of the same ethnicity of me. It says God loved the world. That means everybody. There's nobody who lives now, will live in the future, or has lived in the past that God doesn't love. Why is that profound? Because we struggle with loving people. Think about what, what is that, what's the one thing that you deal with? What's the thing that comes up that you're like, I can love people for all these kind of things, even though they do these things, but man, for this thing, I can't love that person. Boy, this is something that really hits home for us in our context right now. We are living in a very volatile, divided nation right now. In fact, pastors like me have to be very careful that you don't say, you don't, bring politics to the podium because people immediately part ways in the room and like, oh no, is he Republican or Democrat? Does he like Trump or does he hate Trump? That's all, that's it. And we miss the point because Jesus would love somebody whether they were liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican, and he wouldn't look at them that way, would he? He would love the person that disagrees with everything he does morally. They're, he would, he would still love them. Why? Because his love doesn't have political limits. His, his, also, his love doesn't have moral limits. We have moral limits. When somebody lives a, a, a lifestyle that we perceive to be immoral, we don't know what to do with them. And the last thing that we want to do is hang around immoral people. Why? Because we might become more immoral too. They'll brush off on us, you know. Do you not realize that Jesus never had that fear? He became human without worrying about being sinful like human beings. He was around sinners constantly but never sinned. Because he realized that being present was what he needed to do. Why? Because the context of love is relationship, which means Jesus loved everybody. We're so afraid that when we're near people that we disagree with or we don't understand and maybe can't really love, that somehow we can't really be present. So we disconnect, and we what do we do? We break relationship. And so there's a disconnect. I think I might have read this quote before, but author Anna uh, Uh, writer, uh, or excuse me, a pastor, A.J. Saboto said this. He said, Jesus loves me and shows up in my life all the time, even though he disagrees with about 98% of what I do in my life. Isn't that true? So he gave himself 2%. And this is what he says. Incarnation does not depend on agreement. Incarnation depends on being present. Jesus disagrees with all of us, yet he came into the world. He disagrees with our decisions, our morality. He disagrees with our politics. He disagrees with everything about us, and yet he still loves us. He still loves us. Why? Because he doesn't look at who is lovable and who's not. He loves the world. So let me be specific for me, and I, I might have shared this story before. I think I have, but it's easy to love the world when the world is ambiguous and undefined. It's hard to love the world when it comes to your front door and it's something, somebody you don't love. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I love everybody until the one person I don't love shows up in my life or exhibits exhibits the kind of behavior that I don't know how to handle. And it's interesting how God always orchestrates seasons in your life where he confronts you with that. He brings people into your life that are hard to love because he's saying, by the way, you've been hard to love, so now you get a taste of your own medicine. Learn how to love people. So I've shared this before. When we moved up to Oregon and we moved into a little community called Newburgh, Um, A lot of people who were born and raised in Newburgh, there's a lot of deep relationships there, so you kind of had to try to break in. And so we didn't have a lot of people that we knew. In fact, when we moved up there, we knew nobody really at all. And so when we moved in, you're trying to get to know people, get to know the city. And when we were there for a few months, we found a house to buy, and so we bought the house, and we were moving in. And that neighborhood that we moved into had a long history with people who lived there for years. Some of them had already raised their kids or lived there. There were another kind of round of kids coming up. So people really knew each other. And so um, we didn't know this before we moved in, but we found this out probably like a year or two after we had moved in. So the, the, the family that lived next door to us, or that would live next door to us, uh, they were about as opposite as you could define as what Christian would look like. In terms of their morality, I mean, uh, if you go down kind of the checklist of what we do, they smoked, they drank, they cussed, I don't know what else they did, but I mean, just not the family you want to live next to, right? And and so you're moving into that, and so they, not only did we, we didn't know about their kind of their reputation, but we heard a few years later that not only did they live that way, but they didn't like Christians at all, because Christians were moral people. And then on top of that, they really didn't like pastors. And I've, many of you heard me say this, and this is what we heard a few years later. The woman, the, the wife and uh, the husband and wife and their kids, but she made this, this statement to the neighborhood before we even moved in. She goes, I don't want the pastors living next to me. So she made this commitment. She goes, I'm going to get drunk and get naked and hang out in my backyard until they move. That's what she said she was going to do. I'm going to be as offensive as possible till they leave. That was her commitment. We didn't know that coming in. We're like, hey, we're just moving into the neighborhood. So we realized right off the bat, there was tension already. You could tell that, you know, neighbors move in and she just, there was tension. And here's the interesting thing, the way God orchestrates things, is that that our house, when it was originally built in in Newburgh, it didn't have fences around. None of the the houses in the neighborhood fences. In fact, I realized when Californians move to Oregon, they put up fences. Oregonians naturally don't put up fences. That's just the way they are. And so the fence had been put up in our backyard, but it didn't go all the way from the back of our house to the front. It stopped at the back, and so did our neighbors. So we had this kind of shared space in between our houses. And so our, li- our family room window faced their kitchen window. So we were like in each other's space all the time. You, you're seeing what's going on in their kitchen. You're, they're seeing what's going on in our family room because there's no barrier. They would put, park their boat there every once in a while. I'm like, please put your boat there, right? At least there's some privacy. But I, I could tell there was tension right away. But Kim and I knew right away that God put us there for a reason. That it's funny how God puts you next to difficult people, He always does. And so we knew that we had to love them, and so we did. And Kim reached out right away and tried to build a relationship. And sure enough, about three years in from when we were there, in the same week, her brother and her husband's brother both committed suicide. And their family was devastated. And so we reached out to them, and Kim started meeting with the, with the, with the wife and got to know her. And she started, I remember Kim would come back from her meetings, and she would always look, and she, would, she Kim would say things like this. She said, yeah, when we were talking, she'd look at me, and she goes... You're not like other pastors, which was actually a compliment because you're not judgmental and you actually love me. And so we started to build a relationship. And, I, and I, I've shared, I mean, we went through with that. And then when their dog died, she calls me and she says she's in tears. They'd had the dog for 16 years. The dog died. She said, listen, I just left the house. The dog is laying in the backyard. My boys, which by that time were 14 and 16, This had been their dog for their life. She said, I don't want them coming home and finding the dog. Can you go in the backyard and make sure they don't get in the backyard? I'm like, yeah, I'm there. So I'm in the backyard, and and they came home, and I kept them out. And so then she got home, and she broke the news to them. So there's lots of tears. And I've shared this before, but I won't go on and say it. But she just kept repeating, the damn dog, the damn dog. I'm like, why is it? She goes, I hated this stupid dog. (laughs) And she's sobbing. She goes, but I'm so broken over this dumb dog. So she's just sobbing, and so then she had a friend come over, and then Kim and I are there, and so we're all crying, you know, I'm like, I don't even really know the dog. The dog kind of bothered me, so I don't know if this is good or bad for me, and she looks at Kim, she goes, I know you don't really believe in this stuff, but could you go in the house and get me a cigarette? I really need to smoke right now, and Kim's like, sure, so she went in and got her a cigarette, so she's smoking, and then she looks at me as she's puffing away. She goes, you're a pastor, can't you, don't you have a special prayer for this or something? A dog dies, and there's a prayer for that? <laughs> she has no church background. She doesn't know, I'm like... I can pray. I don't know if there's a special dog prayer, you know, and so she's like, like last rites or something. I don't know if it applies to dogs or whatever. (laughs) So we did. We got in a circle and we prayed and she's sobbing and I started crying, not for the dumb dog, but I started crying because I saw how much it impacted her and her boys and so we hung out with this dead dog in the middle of us until finally they decided to let the boys go in and we we took care of the dog And, and I remember, it was probably about two years after that, they moved out of the neighborhood. They bought another house in the area and I remember when she left, She didn't leave. Oh, I'm so glad to get away from those pastors. There was sadness for her to leave. It was a good thing Newburgh is a small community because we kept running into them. We We stayed in contact with them. But the difference was I could tell she realized that even though her lifestyle was different, life was difficult for her, she wasn't a Christian. I don't think she ever questioned that we loved her. And she understood that. And I know that at first it was hard for me. I think it was easier for Kim to love her than it was for me. But understanding that God had put us there because God had said, I have demonstrated my love without limits and conditions for you. And now, guess what you're going to do? For the same one. Hey, Sam, how are you, buddy? We're looking for mom and dad. They're all the way over on this side. You want to find them? Everybody say good morning to Sam. Hi, Sam. There's mom. Everybody say hi to Layla. Hi, Layla. All right, very good. And Layla loves Sam. What a perfect opportunity to show mom's love for her son, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> so two more things. Incarnational love not only requires, obviously, uh, living, giving up the limits and ultimately loving the world, but it means that it requires giving up what is valuable. So if you read on the passage, it says, for God to so love the world, and depending on what translation you have, it says God gave his only begotten son or only son, which means God in heaven, the Father, did not have like this long, like... Um, like line of sons that he could just like, ah, I could give up one. He had one. That's it. That's all he had. His most valuable thing was his son, and he gave his son willingly for us. That's the demonstration of love gives up what's valuable. If it's not valuable, then ultimately it's not truly loving. And so what is it that in your life is difficult to give up? Because many times that's the very thing that you need to be willing to give up in order to demonstrate the kind of love that people need to see. And we struggle with that. So maybe it's, maybe it's your time, maybe it's your money, maybe it's a lot of things. But I know for sure, I've, I've realized this in my life, and I think this is true for our culture. Actually, I think there's something in our culture that has become more valuable than money. It's our time. There's always things competing for our time. And time is a currency. You spend it. And so we always, when we're considering doing something, either we say it or we think it. I can't afford to do this I don't have enough time to do this and so we make decisions based on that so when we're most of us you if you're like me I live by a calendar because there's a lot to squeeze in in every day and so I try to make sure and and a lot of times I don't have margins and when you don't have a margin and something shows up that's not on the schedule oh man that's hard isn't it because you have a time frame that you've allotted for everything to make sure that you get what's done God always messes up my calendar he does Because it's not me being in control anymore, it's him. And I know for me, giving up time is hard. That is always a decision. But if time is more valuable for me, maybe it's the very thing that God's calling me to give up. This This hit me... Uh, pretty hard a couple a couple months ago i went out for a run and there's a couple different routes that i run on and one of them takes me through the wash and when i go through the wash in simi valley there's a number there's homeless people that i encounter and some people that i've seen before some that are new and sometimes i'll try to reach out to them but but when i run i always run with uh, my app running and it tells me my pace and my distance and all that stuff and so i'm kind of driven by that anybody run you know you kind of it's in your ear it's telling you hurry up you know you're not running fast enough kind of thing so I was running in one of the routes one day that actually I usually don't in- encounter homeless folks in our city, but on that particular day I was running and there was a guy who was on this grass here and he was, he was asleep. And so as I was running up on him, I just kind of registered. I thought, okay, well, at first I thought, well, I wonder if he like passed out and he's in need of help or if he's sleeping, and, but I'm just going to be really transparent. I was about like, you know, like, I don't know, 100 feet from him and in my mind I'm thinking, oh man, but I'm setting the pace right now. I only really have so much time for this run. And I know what my pace is. And so I just ran right on by him. Yeah, I know, bad pastor. Not, haven't, don't remember the Good Samaritan story from my childhood. I know, I get it, okay? Don't tell me that some of you wouldn't have been tempted to run on by too. So I ran by, but I had about that loop, the loop that I'm on takes me right back by that. And the loop takes me out about 20 minutes from that point, And then I come back. So as I got past him, I'm like negotiating with God because now I'm feeling highly convicted because I'm on my pace. And so I'm feeling okay, and the Lord said, obviously, you're going to stop on the way back, aren't you? Yes, I am going to stop on the way back, and I did. So I came back, and he was still laying there. I was just praying, God, would you just wake him up and have him move so I don't have to feel guilty, right? Come on, you guys are going, oh, come on, you feel the same way, all right? And sure enough, he's laying there, and so I come back, and so I stop. And at first, you know, I understand this, because I've encountered lots of homeless people. When a homeless person is sleeping, don't wake them up. Please don't, because this guy had been sleeping outside all night and he didn't have any, any cover over him. And he finally was asleep, at least that's what I thought. So I got really close to him. He didn't know, but I wanted to make sure he was breathing. So I got down close to him and I and I watched his chest go up and down, and then also I made sure that his mouth was clear. He was kind of laying on his side, so nothing was impeding him breathing. And I just stood there for a couple minutes just to make sure, and because I was like, I even kind of whispered, like, "Hey, are you okay?" And he's just breathing peacefully. And I'm like, "I'm not gonna go, hey buddy, how are you? Can you wake up?" To, I wasn't gonna do that. And so then I moved on, and I looked back after I got kind of around the corner. I had l- kind of looked back, and I could see that he actually—I don't know if I woke him up or not but he was up, upright walking and he was okay. But as I kept my kept running home, I just thought, Lord, please forgive me for not being willing to give up my time. You know, you think, thinking, oh, this great story that Pastor John saved the homeless man. No, Pastor John ignored a homeless man that God gave him a second chance at because I wasn't willing to give up time. Maybe it's not time for you. Maybe it's something else. But God will confront you with if you're going to love people, that means you have to give up the things that are most valuable to you. And then there's this last last reality before the worship team will join us for one last song. And that is, here's the hardest one. Incarnational love requires all of you. It's not part of us. It's not a percentage of us. It's it's all of us. It says that, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So listen to this. This is powerful. God dis- God gave all of himself in Jesus. Jesus came into the world and was all in. The word believe in this context, and especially when it was written to a group of Jews a couple thousand years ago, is different than the way we understand belief today. In our Western mindset, we believe, we think that belief means facts and information. So people interpret, well, if I believe in Jesus, I believe that he was real, I believe information, I believe facts. It is so much more than that. Because belief had to be believing into, entrusting yourself into something. So when you believe in God, you entrust yourself to him. To believe in Jesus means I fully invest myself in him. I entrust myself to him. I give my life to him. So it isn't just, though I believe that Jesus existed, that's not what this is talking about. It's I I believe to the point where I give my life and I I entrust myself to him. Why? Because Jesus actually gave himself to us. Jesus didn't come for a weekend visit to earth, did he? He came for a lifetime. He came to a lifetime of suffering and misunderstanding and being marginalized and being, being brutalized and being crucified and all that, all for us. And at never one point did he somehow pull back and stop. So he was fully invested. That means he gave all of himself for us. So what does is, what is incarnational love look like? It means, as a follower of Jesus who's received the love of God, I don't have the right to not love other people fully. I don't. And that's hard. And this is why it's difficult. Because sometimes, although time and money might be important to us, sometimes it's easier to give things instead of giving ourselves. It is, if you think about it. And it's interesting. um, So we, by the way, many of you know about this thing called Laundry Love, and you participated through our community groups. So we're six years into Laundry Love. We just launched our seventh Laundry Love, so every laundromat except for one in the city of Simi Valley has an Antioch Laundry Love in it right now, which is great. It's great. And I, I want to tell you kind of the journey of that. So before I got here, and historically our church has had great impact in our city, caring for the needs of the poor. And for a long time our church had a very effective food pantry And in fact, the starting of that food pantry decades ago actually sparked something in our city that led to this day that there is an abundance of food that people can access if they're hungry in the city of Simi Valley, which is awesome. And we knew this about six years ago, and so when we shifted with this concept of laundry love and knowing in the moving of our building there wasn't space to continue on with a, a food pantry, when we shifted to laundry love, it changed the dynamic a little bit. And for some people, like, oh, we should be giving out food. We should, but there, also, there are people who are either homeless or working poor in our, in our laundromats throughout our city that need to know the love of God. So we shifted to this thing. It's been an interesting journey over the last six years with laundry love. Because some people, they get the concept, they jump in, and they go after it. Other people, they get frustrated by it. They, they push back on it. Because here's the concept that we have of the de- definition of laundry love. We think that love is expressed when I go in and I pay for people's laundry. That's loving. And then when the opportunity is right, I present the gospel, and they get saved, and then I check the box, and I'm done. Now, nobody says it that way, but that's the way some people will approach laundry love. Let me just tell you, that's easy. It is super easy. In fact, if you're a part of Laundry Love, that's one of the, the reasons we, we don't raise money for Laundry Love because each group that does it, you put skin in the game by putting quarters in. You're in. But sometimes it's easier, like some people will say, oh, I'll give to Laundry Love, but I'm not going to go to Laundry Love. Why? It's easier to do that. And it's also easier to try to sit down and s- explain the gospel to somebody so you can say, hey, I presented the gospel, I've done my duty. That's easy. It really is. You're like, is saying evangelism easy? No, evangelism is not you just saying the gospel. Evangelism is a relational connection that leads somebody to experience the gospel. There's a big difference. And that's why laundry love is so difficult for so many people. Because it requires all of you. And here's why. Making a difference in a laundromat doesn't happen once or twice or 12 times. Usually what we found in our laundry loves is that trust is built over about two to three years in the laundromat. That's how long it takes to break through. So that people actually know that you're there for the right reason. that you're. In fact, the first question we get, are you a church? Are you a program? What's your angle? That's always what we get. But understanding that if you are present, guess what you start to earn? You start to earn respect and earn trust. Why? Because it's not about paying for laundry. It's not about cramming the gospel down people's throats. It's about building a relationship that God uses to demonstrate his love. That's why it's so powerful. It is so powerful, and we've seen that in our laundromat where now I consider the people in our laundromat friends. They're not a project, they're people, and they have lives, in fact, it's been amazing in our laundromat how people have turned around and they try to start helping with laundry love. They, they don't see themselves as a project. Why? Because they look at us as friends and there's in this relationship. And we've seen in all of our laundromats, we've actually seen people not only come to church, but we've seen people come to know Jesus, people be cared for. Why? It takes a long time. But people who get it realize I'm in this for the long haul. Because I've talked to people who've gone to laundry love three times and they've told me this. It doesn't work. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't work? Well, nobody's getting saved. I'm like, yeah, but have you given yourself away yet? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come for a weekend and say, whoop, well, nobody's getting saved. I guess I'm out of here. I'm going back to heaven. <laughs> he didn't do that. And by the way, when Jesus left the planet, when he went to the cross, now he had, obviously, the came, some came out of the resurrection, but you remember how many he had? He had 12 committed followers. And by the way, if you read the Gospels, all of them turned their back on him. This is the God of the universe. Can you imagine that? I'm like, okay, it's not working. God, Father, I'm coming back let's just give this up. He stayed through death into life for our sake. And I share this about laundry love because what does love look like? Love is present. Love is all of us. And it's never about what benefits us. It's about what benefits the person who's the recipient of our love. And that's why the relationship, again, going back to the beginning, relationship is the conduit of God's love. That means it's the conduit of God's love through us to other people, which means in order for people to come to know Jesus, it doesn't always happen this way, but more and more in, in our culture today, people have to know somebody that lives incarnationally to come to know Jesus. They have to see it to believe it. And how do they see it? Through the lives of people who follow God and have experienced his love. Would you go ahead and just close your eyes and bow your heads? Uh, wor- worship team is going to come and join us. And as they do that, I want us to just to prepare for to respond in the song that we're going to sing, but even for those that are here today, that experiencing God's love has been something that's been difficult for you. In fact, it might be so difficult for you that you have never come to a place where you have done that very thing I talked about which which, what John 3.16 says that whoever believes in him which means entrust yourself fully to who God is through Jesus so I'm going to share something here and, and hear me this is not about joining a religion this is not about becoming a Christian this is about being reconnected to the God of the universe who created you who brought you into the world and gives meaning and purpose to your life that you can't experience on your own Because somewhere in your life, just as all of us have, you made a decision, and we all make these decisions once and maybe frequently throughout our lifetime. Where although we know that God may have something different for us, we choose our own path. We choose what we want. And in choosing that, just like Adam and Eve said, no, we'll choose to eat of this tree even though you said not to. We lose relationship with God. And when we lose relationship with God, we become isolated. And being isolated, we are left to figure out this world, this life, our struggles, our pain, our sorrow, our failure, our sin, all by ourselves. And that's the sum total of our life. We struggle and we go through times and something in us just says, I can't reach out to God because I don't know if I can trust him today you're here because God has orchestrated a circumstance for you to hear once again the truth of his love for you that God has been working through the circumstances of your entire life whether you are 10 or you are 80 he's orchestrated your life to understand this reality that God of the universe loves you without limits and without conditions but there's something so profound about his love we sang it earlier That God's love is so good, it will never leave us where we're at. It won't ask us to change in order to gain it, but it'll transform us when we experience it. So when you look at all of your life, God is asking for something from you today. He's asking you to surrender everything to Him. And when He says surrender, you surrender your sin, your brokenness, your failure. You also surrender your hopes, your dreams, your intentions. Why? Why? because you've yet to discover what love is through being reconnected to God and therefore you have yet to discover what life is supposed to be for, for you. And if that's you today and you know that that's something that you desire to do and I pray in a moment, you're gonna pray too. You're just gonna tell God that I'm choosing to entrust myself to Jesus who paid for your sin and brokenness and your failure so that now the way you relate to God is that you're right with God, you're good with God because of what Jesus has done and you can be that way today. But you pray and you ask God, God, I confess my sin, I ask for your forgiveness, I give all of who I am over to you and in return would you allow me to experience the fullness of your love through what Jesus wants to do in me today. And for others of us, if you've done that but you know one of the things you struggle with is how do I learn to love other people the way that God's loved me? I'm gonna pray in a moment that God would give you the strength and the courage to be able to love the way that you've been loved. So Jesus, we thank you that as we celebrate this season, we celebrate Christmas, we are so grateful that you willingly, in connection with the Father, chose to become human to demonstrate once and for all that the God of the universe is not a God who lives constantly in hatred and wrath and anger towards his creation, but that the primary nature of who God is, Jesus, you've demonstrated, it's love. You loved broken people. You loved sinful people. You loved wealthy people. You loved poor people. You loved Jewish people. You loved Gentiles. You loved men. You loved women. You loved people who were sexually broken. You loved people who were morally secure. You loved everybody right where they were. And so today, Lord, I pray that you would help us and those who, Lord, are coming for the first time, would you give them the courage to surrender their lives to you? So that ultimately, Lord, when we leave this place, that we are going to live out the truth of what we're going to sing. Your love is surrounding. Never leaves us, never forsakes us, is always present. So, Lord, as we experience that, as we sing, Lord, would you remind us that as we live our lives, your love is present for us. That means your love is present for all. And we would live our lives that way as we experience and receive your love and then give it to others. In Jesus' name,